This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralji Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their work in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading. Or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year also inaugurates the VMI Fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise with a manuscript in progress who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise, including but not limited to racism, poverty or class barriers, geographic dislocation or refugee status, single parenthood, disability, or serious illness. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2021 is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by Jennifer Nansabuga Makumbi's A Girl is a Body of Water, which Namwale Serpel calls a wonder as clear, vivid, moving, powerful, and captivatingly unpredictable as water itself. The novel tells the story of an Ugandan girl who comes of age as she confronts a piercing question that has haunted her childhood. Who is my mother? Says the New York Times. The reader cannot escape the intimacy of this story. Makumbi's prose is irresistible and poignant, with remarkable wit, heart, and charm. Poetic and nuanced, brilliant and sly, open-hearted and cunning, balancing discordant truths in wise ruminations. A girl is a body of water, rewards the reader with one of the most outstanding heroines and the incredible honor of journeying by her side. A Girl is a Body of Water is out now from Tin House. On the day before I was to interview today's guest, Mary Kim Arnold, I learned that Portland was going to experience a once-in-a-century windstorm. I warned Mary Kim that I didn't know if I'd have power when we talked the next day, nor what state everything would be in, but that we'd give it a go. At the time, I thought, how is this happening a windstorm like no one alive has ever experienced in the state, on top of the hundred days of protest, the occupation of the city by federal troops, with both local and federal police targeting journalists and medics, and pulling protesters into unmarked cars, all of that on top of a global pandemic that was finishing up its sixth month of citywide shutdown. Little did I know that when Mary Kim and I talked, that this windstorm would lead to unimaginable wildfires up and down the West Coast, with the largest fire in Oregon about 25 miles from my house, where our air quality would become so hazardous that the numbers we were experiencing were off the air quality index scale, that they had never anticipated the scale should go higher, that we would not only be the most polluted major city in the world, but one that was twice to almost three times as polluted 
as the number two city. None of this had yet happened when Mary Kim and I talked, other than the wind. The eight days of wet towels along our doors and taped up windows, of wearing an N95 mask not only all day but to bed, strapping furnace filters to a box fan to clean the air wherever we were at the moment, of an entire week where the temperature was 25 degrees colder than forecasted due to the lack of sun, where there literally were no shadows, nor birds or crickets, just the most eerie, otherworldly silence. All of this happened since Mary Kim and I talked. I bring this up not because it relates directly to what Mary Kim and I talk about today, a wide-ranging conversation about hybrid art, orphanhood and transnational adoption, about Koreanness, about Teresa Hakyung Cha's dictée and Francesca Woodman's photography, and much more. But because when I packed my emergency suitcase, in case we needed to flee, not the smoke, but a fire encroaching on the city limits, I never packed a suitcase of clothes. This was likely because I was comforted by being in a half-denial, but I was only in a half-denial. The first and only thing I packed was a podcast suitcase, full of the books of the writers I'm scheduled to talk to this fall and winter and spring, the notes I've taken that are stuffed within each of these books, my podcast mixer, and a microphone. Imagining that at the very least, if we rushed out of the house and drove in low visibility the 400 miles to get past the plume of smoke, that I could still do the podcast from a motel along the side of the road in some remote corner of Utah or Nevada. That this suitcase was what I packed was not necessarily something I knew I would do before the fire. It was something I learned about myself in the moment as it was unfolding. And I realized that this sense of a future for the show, this sense of futurity in the face of apocalypse, is really thanks to you. If you've listened to the most recent four episodes before this one, you've been following not only how my work situation has been changed by the pandemic and the fall fundraising campaign that has resulted to aim to make this a viable option for me going forward, but also all that you've done in response, sharing what the show means to you with friends and followers, and supporting the show, if you can, on Patreon. Between the Covers is well on its way to moving the percentage of listeners who are also supporters from between 1% and 2% to between 2 and 3% by the end of the year. And the sense that the show matters, that people wanted to have a future, to imagine a future listening to it, that I'd pack a podcast suitcase instead of fresh socks and shirts to flee a fire into that future is really thanks to you. If you're interested in finding out how to join a dynamic community of listener supporters, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Entry level is $1 an episode or a mere $24 a year, which will get you a resource-rich email with each episode containing links to things discussed and suggestions of other places to explore 
as well as being able to join conversations about how the show should evolve going forward and who we should invite on the show. There's also a ton of available Tin House merchandise, from prints to tote bags to books. And you can also consider subscribing to the ever-growing bonus audio archive, where today's guest, Mary Kim Arnold, adds a discussion and a reading of works by the two authors who are behind her epigraphs, Fareed Matuk and Viet Tan Nguyen. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with the poet and hybrid and multimedia artist, Mary Kim Arnold. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the cross-genre writer and artist, a writer of poetry, prose, hybrid, and multimedia works, Mary Kim Arnold. Arnold has a BA in English and American Literature and an MFA in Fiction from Brown University. She also has an MFA in Poetry from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. After working in the world of nonprofit administration, most notably as director of the Rhode Island Council of Humanities, Arnold now teaches in the nonfiction writing program at Brown and in the Newport MFA Low Residency Program. Arnold succeeded Roxane Gay as the essays editor at The Rumpus and now serves on their advisory board. She is also the special projects editor for Essay Press, and she co-chairs the board of directors for the feminist art collective, The Dirt Palace. Her work has appeared in Conjunctions, The Georgia Review, Hyperallergic, Tupelo Quarterly, and elsewhere. She is also the author of several early touchstone pieces of hypertext fiction, hosted at Eastgate Systems, and for a time played bass in the band Working. Mary Kim Arnold is the author of Litany for the Long Moment, a book-length experimental memoir an extended lyric essay, and a work of image text about her failed search for her Korean birth mother. Litany for the Long Moment was winner of the 2016 Essay Press Prize, honored by the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association, named a Best of 2018 by Entropy Magazine, included in the NPR Code Switch 2018 Book Guide, and was a finalist for the 2018 Chautauqua Janus Prize for Formal and Aesthetic Innovation. She's also the author of the chapbook from Artifact Press, Between Night and Night, 
and was co-editor of the anthology Mixed Korean, Our Stories. Mary Kim Arnold is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, her poetry collection from Noemi Press called The Fish and the Dove. A rumpus poetry book club selection, Publishers Weekly says in its starred review, The Fish and the Dove interrogates identity and received modes of storytelling. A series of linked lyric pieces unfolds into fragments and visual experiments with grayscale, palimpsest, and erasure. For Arnold, the question of who has the agency to chronicle and erase history looms. Arnold proves as self-aware as she is subtle, gesturing to the performative quality of her language and reminding the reader of its politically charged intent. This book is a rare achievement and Arnold an exciting voice in contemporary poetry. Brandon Shimoda adds, The shadow cast by the reflection and the feeling of looking into a mirror at oneself, not only with one's own eyes, but with the eyes of another, especially the compounded eyes of many uninvited others, all threatening to disappear but not leave, is long, bottomless, and engulfing. And yet in it exists the fish and the dove, and the vigilant, avenging poetics of St. Mary Kim Arnold. I feel, reading this liberatory book, the shattering of that precarious mirror, and in the reconstitution of its shards, the reclamation of the life, the lives it held under, faring forward. Finally, Diana Koi Wen says, In The Fish and the Dove, Mary Kim Arnold's lyrical scope sweeps across intersecting terrains, moving through time to capture the history of occupation and the legacy of war in Korea through the delicate tethers between biological mother, adoptive mother, motherland, and daughter, and through the permeable membranes which exist between person and place. Here we follow an adopted Korean-born speaker from American girlhood through womanhood and motherhood, witnessing what it means to be a woman in this world. No war is forgotten to those who lived through it, Arnold writes, and with this fiercely tender offering, she lays bare multiple wars, ones between countries, in memory, within a family, as well as the ones between women and men. Through persona and self-portraiture, as well as found language, Arnold has masterfully crafted a searing account of personal history unflinchingly situated within fraught contexts. Time is a robe stitched through with ash that Arnold keeps trying to shake off, and it is an astonishing sight to behold. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mary Kim Arnold. Thank you so much for having me, David. So when I think about this introduction and look over your career, one that includes poetry and prose, image text, hypertext, video, visual art with both fabric and Korean papermaking techniques, it's obvious to me that there's something that attracts you to cross-genre and, and multimedia creations. And it turns out you've actually thought and written a lot about this, about hybrid art, 
both within the books themselves, but also in essays outside of them. So I was hoping maybe we could start with the form for you, if you consider it a form, if you could speak to hybridity and, and why you're drawn to creating works that either are sitting in between a space or in a space of dialogue between different things. I think of myself as a hybrid uh, creature in many ways. And I think even in my um, professional life, I've often sat at the interstitial places between institutions and organizations. Um, and, you know, in terms of the work itself, I often think that um, the categories are not so much about the way the work or the creative impulse arises, but a way to talk about it after it's done. And, and most often that's um, in a certain way to like market it or describe it. Um, and so I often talk with my students about like, it, it, it's maybe not as important to think about those things in the creation of it, but to sort of follow the impulse and to leave it uh, open to experiment. You know, I think the other um piece of it in terms of my own practice is that I find that I will um, deal with a lot of the same subject matter or a lot of related subject matter in different forms, um, mostly as a way to constantly test it, to get at something um, maybe that's truer or different or more nuanced or more complicated. Um, I think of the practice as, as just a series of experiments, and I'm really interested in seeing what um, changes between and among forms. Well, in your, your essay, Leave the Bodies on the Ground, Notes on Form, where you write about different notions of hybridity, you talk about how it was when the writer, Carol Mesa, who was your teacher, that it was when she gave you Teresa Hakyung Cha's dictée that you, your interest in hybridity found a name. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us a little bit about Teresa Hakyung Cha's dictée and her as a figure and artist in general, but also in the ways in which you feel like you found a, a whether a lineage or a, a way to orient yourself to a history of, of the work that you yourself felt compelled to do. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I should say, too, that when I was doing um, the program in fiction, uh, creative nonfiction or, you know, nonfiction, the way we sort of think about it now, the essay, the way we think about it now, wasn't really uh, a genre in the way it is named now, at least not in institutional settings. And so fiction seemed uh, like an appropriate home for what I was doing because it seemed like it could accommodate a lot of experimentation and particularly um, at Brown and the uh, teachers that I had worked with. Um, Dictae, uh, I was writing a lot of fragments um, and having a lot of trouble um, developing an overarching narrative, telling a straightforward story. And um, when I saw Dictate, just first of all, just the book itself, the way it looked as a book, um, it was so revelatory because it, it seemed to capture some of the energy that I was trying to get at in my own work, that these sort of stops and starts, these bits of information that were brought together from different sources. Um, I think Dictate was the first work by a Korean-American woman that I had encountered in my entire career, and this was in graduate school, and 
you know, that in itself, I think, is um, telling about, you know, my own exposure. And I, um, it made a lot seem possible. So it made addressing the gaps and silences in Korean-ness, um, in my own experience of Korean-ness, my own understanding of Korean-ness, um, seem like it was possible to include in a work. It made uh, fragments seem possible. It made certain kinds of juxtapositions um, and resistances, um, you know, a sort of rejecting of uh, closure, uh, keeping something open-ended. That was all incredibly compelling to me. And then, of course, um, Cha's own story as a Korean-American immigrant who, um, you know, her family first um, settled in the Bay Area and she went to a Catholic school and learned uh, French dictation, all of which had resonance for my own um, experience, my high school French classes and my Catholic school upbringing. Um, so there seemed to be these resonances um, as well. And of course, uh, I think many of us who are familiar with the work know now um, that she had just moved to New York to, um, you know, really, uh, her career was at a, a point of um, momentum when she moved to New York and she was uh, raped and murdered by um, a security guard in the building where her husband was working. And um, that story, of course, um, sort of spoke to a lot of things about um, being a woman, being an Asian woman, um, being vulnerable in those ways, and um, also is a story about a life ruptured um, and uh, a woman who's not able to narrate her own story, ultimately. Well, one of the other um, echoes that I see between Dicte and, and the fish and the dove is that Dicte engages with Greek mythology as a way it organizes itself. And, and here in your poetry collection, we have a figure from both Assyrian mythology and history, Semiramis. Her story is something that informs the title of the book and also the way you open the book, and it reappears throughout the book not as the only element, but certainly as one of the of several primary elements. And Samiramis also herself has a hybrid origin. And I, I was hoping maybe before we start going into the poems and into the collection, you've, you've oriented us a little bit to Dicte, if you could orient us to Samiramis and, and why you felt attracted to bring um, this Assyrian figure into, into the the book is one of its major influences? Um, I think I first came across the figure of Semiramis. Um, I was looking for uh, sort of mythologies, um, ancient mythologies, Korean mythologies, and in the sort of way that the internet pops up all sorts of things, I came across um, Semiramis, and I was taken by um, the fact that she was also an orphan. So the first element of it was um, just as an orphan. And then, you know, as you point out, this hybridity, the mythology um, around her is that she was the, um, her mother was a fish goddess, and she was the product of a goddess and a mortal man. And, you know, I should back up by saying that um, she is a historical figure who 
lived, um, but there has also been a great deal of mythologizing around her. And part of what um, what interested me about that and the mythologies that that arose around her was that as a woman um, leader of the Assyrian Empire, there are accounts that she was very successful and she ruled at the height of the uh, empire's power. And and it seemed to me in the reading that I did that that fact, the fact of her being so successful was so um, challenging for historians to contextualize or to understand that it's sort of, at least, you know, in my mind, the, the writing about her sort of dissolved into this mythology because the mental gymnastics of, of actually having a successful woman leader uh, was so difficult and so problematic. And so um, that was part of what drew me to this story. Um, and then, of course, when, when you know, she takes on this uh, sort of orphan hybrid character, and that figure, too, seemed very uh, compelling as a starting point for some of the things that I was already thinking about. And, and the hybridity isn't just the fish goddess with a mortal man, but her biological mother in the mythology is the fish goddess, and but then she's raised by doves. Right, yes. Right? So we have another level of sort of hybrid identity there, too. Could could we hear? Um, I was hoping we could hear self portrait as Semiramis, and then um, if you're open to it, follow that with a legacy. Sure. Self portrait as Semiramis. Had I been raised by doves, wouldn't I have learned to fly? By wolves to hunt in packs. Had I been raised by gods, wouldn't I too be godlike? In the movies, the orphan is the killer, not loved enough, unwanted, but wasn't I most wanted? My mother, fish goddess, dove into the sea for the sin of loving a mortal man. I love a mortal man, too. At night, I coax him from sleep, rousing him with my mouth. By day, we build high brick walls around us, our Babylon. Had my mother lived to see me rise from this boundless deep, would she recognize me as I have grown large and my arms have become the long arms of the sea reaching over and over for the shore? And this is Legacy. It was not my choice to skin rabbits, to let their blood drain over me. This is something that nobles do, and I am descended from a long line of royalty. We fear no armies of men. Rabbit blood is warm and thin. I was fully clothed when I began the rabbit ritual, then disrobed in accordance with tradition. Rabbit slaughter naked in the dim light, white fur stained red, pale skin streaked red, Red pools on the marble floors, I bathe in red. Did I mention that I am of the noble class? You probably have noticed this already. Wasn't I beautiful in my untouched youth, before I bled? But now my hands, my hair, have you ever seen so much red? You see, my father is ill, his heart is weak. I bring him tea he does not drink. 
I mash ripe figs with a spoon and press the thick paste to his lips. With the same spoon I gouge out rabbit eyes and tell him, Father, they are all blind now. I show him the spoon, their eyes, my hands. He nods his head beneath its heavy crown. My father's bed is the altar where we gather, all the blind rabbits and me. We know the men are advancing, we can hear them sharpening steel. When they reach us, I will throw myself naked across the body of my dead father, and they will see us, and they will know from what nobility we have descended. Been listening to Mary Kim Arnold read from The Fish and the Dove. So is this... Second poem, Legacy, inspired by the short story by uh, Kanai Mieko, Rabbits. Yes. Can you tell us about that story and how it's finding its place in, in the collection? Yeah. So it's a story that I read uh, as a student, as an undergrad, and I just, it haunted me. You know, there are just these moments that sort of stay with me from uh, art and literature. And this was just one of those moments. I couldn't shake this idea of this girl who, um, so her father is a hunter and he hunts rabbits and the rest of the family is really kind of disgusted and repulsed by um, his hunting rituals. And then he cooks the rabbits, but this girl, his daughter, um, develops this real fondness for their rituals. And so these eating rituals become more and more elaborate over time and more um, sort of excessive uh, in the in the way they prepare and the number of rabbits they kill. And she decides um, one day that she wants to um, understand what it's like to be uh, a rabbit and wants to have this empathy. Um, so in this in this sort of distorted um, enactment, she starts uh, it starts becoming this kind of sensory erotic experience that she has in killing um, and preparing these rabbits to the point where she stitches a a full-size rabbit costume out of these rabbit skins. Um, And it's just very horrifying, the whole thing. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. But the, the way, the way the girl in the story creates sort of like a human sized rabbit, uh, suit for herself to seduce her father. It made me think of a couple things from the Semiramis myth, or maybe not even the myth. I, it, it sounds mythological, but I read that when she wanted to conquer India, she built an army of false elephants by draping these manipulated skins of, right. of dark-skinned buffaloes over her camels. So she had buffalo skins over her camels to give the impression that she was invading with elephants. But then also Semiramis rises to power in the first place when her husband, the king, dies by disguising herself as her own son to trick her husband's army that she's the rightful leader of the army. And she mm-hmm. ultimately becomes the leader of the army in, in, in history and in mythology. But this, this first move is one a sort of adopting the skin of another and you have this line in silence, all, all the girls wore men's clothes because they didn't want to get raped. And I just wondered if any of this was informing the juxtaposition between self-portrait as Semiramis and legacy opening the book, This that positionally these women and girls are having to try on other skins to either obtain a power 
or to avoid a loss of power. Yeah, I love that um, reading of it. Um, I think, and and that is definitely part of what underpins uh, it. I think also I was thinking about that taking on um, uh, the role or the skins, um, which is related as a, as a performative idea, um, you know, performing both. Um, and I think that for me arises from the notion of adoptee, of transnational adoptee. So there's a certain way that I'm performing Americanness. I'm performing uh, um, this, the role of this daughter. Um, so I definitely was thinking about the distance, the sort of emotional and psychic distance required for that kind of um, performance. Um, and I guess the other thing that maybe I was thinking about as well in, in each of those um, examples was inheritance and, you know, legacy, obviously, and, and the ways that we um, take on these roles because of what came before, um, whether or not, you know, in most cases, we, we don't have any control over it, but we're left with, and, you know, so what do you do with what you're left with um, was also a sort of... Uh, idea at play, I think. Well, in your book, Litany for the Long Moment, which is also very deeply engaged with the correct, with the question of Koreanness for you, it nevertheless also has an organizing figure that isn't Korean or Korean American, the American white photographer, Francesca Woodman, who I also, whose work I also adore. Um, and you've said that her presence sits a little awkwardly in the book, given the book's primary concerns. But you could also say the same about the presence of an Assyrian queen in The Fish and the Dove or or the Greek mythology and Teresa Hakyang Cha's dictée. All those books very deeply engaged with this question of Koreanness. So all, all of that made me wonder if, if what you called awkwardness in one interview if, if something about this awkwardness is in and of itself important, if having something break what would have been a possibly more hermetic or more symmetrical approach, if something about maybe a seeming disjunction or interruption is beneficial to that investigation of Koreanness for you mm-hmm. or, or how you would see the way she brings in French language and Greek mythology into dictée. I think in a way this comes back to your earlier question about hybridity and um, your invoking of that uh, essay, the uh, leave, leave the bodies on the ground. There's something about revealing um, one's influences um, in their diversity and complexity and, you know, um, and perhaps even uh misinterpretation or uh, miscontextualization um, that seems really important and valuable to me. There seems to be something very true about me as a, you know, sort of uh, with my own, you know, flawed subjectivity, pulling on all of these things to try to either claim them or juxtapose them or make meaning from uh, disparate elements. And, you know, as I say that, of course, I'm, I'm brought back to the fact of um, the reality of, of my life, which is always trying to make meaning, the impulse to try to make meaning out of disparate elements, out of things that don't make sense. Um, but I think there's something very uh, 
at least to, to my mind, there's something maybe generous about revealing all of one's false starts, all of one's um, influences, uh, even if they don't give the influence like full um, rendering, uh, but that they come together in this way um, and maybe inspire or form new attempts at meaning or new collisions that can somehow be productive. Well, I'd, I'd love it if you would talk a little bit about the stories embedded within the Korean language itself, which you've also written about. Because in the little I know about it, it feels like there's both the sense of having to try on the skins of others and the sense of an awkward foreign presence, um, the presence of both erasure and occupation in the language to contend with. And I think of this both for Korea in relationship to other nations and in relationship to other languages, but also within Korean culture, the way Korean women find access and agency through the way the Korean alphabet is developed. And I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the ways you engaged with um, or some of the things you discovered and then wrote about around the evolution of Korean? Maybe the most notable thing that, that um, was really interesting to me in the uh, writing of Litany was this idea that it was called women's script because there was something more intuitive about or um, easier to use in the Korean alphabet um, than the uh, Chinese characters that had been used by um among the literate. Um, so this ease of use meant that women, um, uh, I think I mentioned that it was referred to as, as women's script. In the first context of that, it was said uh, dismissively, you know, uh, as only women will use it. But what I read was that how women often um, ended up using it to pass on uh, stories of domestic life to their daughters, which I thought was just this really beautiful um, idea that a way they could share their own experience of what it means to be a woman um, was through this language and that this was um, uh, a kind of um, generosity, a, a, a passing along, a, you know, another form of legacy and inheritance. Um and I've lost the train of the question. Well, I was just thinking about I mean, what you say, specifically that this, that prior to the quote-unquote women's script, before that, it was mostly men using Korean that employed Chinese letters. Right, uh, right. And then, but then I was also thinking about the way Korean was outlawed by the Japanese, not only the speaking of Korean, but even having your own name in Korean. You adopted a a Japanese name. I don't know if you saw the um the Alexander Chi article recently in the New York Times as part of the World War Two the World War Two recollection. But um I haven't seen it yet. It's really good. And he talks about one of the things he talks about is his is how his grandfather still dreams in, in Japanese to think about the way the colonization has gone so deeply that it's in your dreams many decades later. It just feels somehow like all of this, these layerings, the fact that at one point 
Koreans using Chinese letters. And then when it moves to create its own written script, it, it creates an entry point for women and then the erasure of spoken Korean after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like somehow that felt very connected to the, to the skins. I might be stretching it too much, but. What it makes me think about, and, and maybe this is a continuation of um, the thought that you're starting is um, when I was reading about language sort of loss and acquisition in the context of uh, adoptees, there was a study that suggested that when um, I think I'm, I'm, if I'm recalling this correctly, it was specifically in adoptees that the um, children will tend to learn, young children will tend to learn the language, the dominant language of, uh, you know, the culture into which they're adopted very quickly. Um, and this is related, of course, to survival, right? They need to be able to communicate in this language. And because their native language is so infrequently maintained in the um, adoptive family that they lose it um, very quickly. They lose all uh, recollection of it, all um, traces of it very quickly. And that seems to be related to, I think, what you're raising about um, the power relationship between languages. Um, I know that... uh, the poet and translator Don Miche talks about the relationship of Korean to English. And I think about that sometimes the sort of obliteration of um, Korean in these different contexts. Um, and I don't know if, if, if maybe this is a, a stretch for me, but I have often thought that that um, silencing of a language um, for Koreans who lived through the occupation um, and the loss of Korean in my experience, um, you know, that there's some resonance there and that that's an element perhaps of Koreanness that, you know, in my attempt to claim Koreanness, that that might be some uh, echo of a shared experience. Could you introduce us to Demilitarize Zone and, and read it for us? Um, you brought up some sure. questions around power and language that I want to connect to this poem. Yeah, so um, it started with a trip that I actually made to uh, the DMZ on that um, trip that I talk about in Litany for the Long Moment. And it really uh, came from this form that we were required to fill out that, you know, is basically like, well, we won't protect you. These are all the rules. You're taking your your life in your hands, basically. Um, and it just sort of struck me as, a, as an artifact in a lot of ways. Um, but then it became this poem. Demilitarized Zone. What rises against the sky, steel-girded, cocksure. What slices the gray air is government-sanctioned. The village is just a village, is just, is just. We take the bus to the border. The tour guide hands out forms and we sign them, promising not to point our cameras in the wrong direction. See, Here is how you will recognize what side you are on. See, here is how you will know where you belong. As if history's frayed threads aren't unraveling. As if the ground beneath us isn't bones and blood. 
Who was taken during the war? Whose small bones? Who was not loyal enough? In the Battle of Wales, the backs of shrimp are broken. Later, an armed guard boards our bus and seizes our cameras, film in black ribbons unspooling at his feet. Image of a woman's face, image of corded telephone and fax machine, image of an armed guard boarding our bus. The tour guide says they are only trying to protect us as we idle on the bridge of no return but we are not asking for much. What I mean is mother tongue and father country. What I mean is let us finish what they started. I've been listening to Mary Kim Arnold read from The Fish and the Dove from Noemi Press. So obviously the demilitarized zone is, is specifically referring to the zone between North and South Korea. The way Korea, the peninsula remains divided and that ill-defined space between them. But it also feels like there's a demilitarized zone between the two aspects of your identity, the two sides of the hyphen, Korean-American, between your two mothers, between English and Korean as, as languages. And when you, when you say the line, in the Battle of Wales, the backs of shrimp are broken, I think of probably the same thing you were referencing when you spoke right before the poem of something that the poet and translator Don Miche uh, said, where she suggests you can't look at the two sides of the hyphen as existing in a simple way side by side. And this is what she said. Korean is subordinate to English. South Korea has been a neo-colony of the U.S. since 1945. Hence, English is not my second language. It is my colonial language like Japanese was my father's. South Korea and the U.S. are not equal. I am not transnationally equal. This feels really important to your project, to me, um, or your projects, um, that you can't talk about Koreanness without acknowledging how it's entangled with American intervention. There's like two threads that I'm thinking of, and um, I guess one is more uh, sort of along the lines of the imagery of the poem and the um, the comment that you made about the demilitarized zone in my own experience of hybridity. And I think something that um, I'm thinking about a lot in this book um, and in my experience of uh, identity is loyalty, um, this idea of, of choosing sides um, and where this might intersect with what uh, you just read of Don Miche is around um, the power differential of the experience of being Korean in the United States, of being Korean in a white uh, American family, the, um, the sense that one has to choose um, in that, you know, there's no, um, uh, there's no critiquing, there's no questioning of uh, American-ness by a person of color, by a Korean-American um, that isn't met with this idea of like, well, then go back. Um, and that was something that I experienced, you know, very early on at a very young age that 
you are expected um, in a in a visibly othered body. Um, you're expected to affirm your loyalty um, to in order to be considered real American, you know, to be considered American. And that is, uh, that hinges on this power differential. Um, I think, you know, it also makes me think about the, um, just sort of the adoption situation and that the, um, power differential between the United States and Korea is then reenacted and reinscribed in, uh, a white American family that adopts, uh, Korean child. So, you know, circling back to this idea of the language not being maintained, right? The the identity of Koreanness is completely um, denied and obliterated, or at least it was um, in my family. And, and I think that's not an uncommon experience for uh, Korean adoptees um, adopted into white families. So the... Um, the sort of maintenance of this uh, power dynamic um, is carried out in the parent-child um, dynamic and accounts for, uh, I think, a lot of um, that silencing of dissent of any kind, both yeah. in terms of like the experience of being a child and, and being confused and being taken out of a cultural context um, and then dissent in the larger um, sense of uh, objecting to American policy. Well, that's what I so love about this collection is first we get the brilliant um, Dami Che quote where she's taking what's going on in a political scenario and bringing it into language um, and into Korean American identity because of that. But then you're taking that also, you're doing that as well, but you're taking that into this power dynamic around adoption and orphanhood. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts, because I did a lot of reading about adoption, Korean adoption, um, that there's up to 200,000 Korean adoptees worldwide Yeah, in a country that is only 50 million people, uh, that up to 10% of Korean Americans are adopted. What is your thoughts on, if you have any, about why that is? I mean, I know that I, I can I can infer or I can fill in my my gaps of knowledge um, with ideas based on you know the ways the countries are positioned, but um, but America is also positioned with other countries and similarly um, with similar power dynamics. So, uh, did you have any thoughts on why why that's the case? The book that I came across and that I would. Um sort of reference, um, so that I don't get too far afield from, uh, you know, um, my own speculation, um, is, uh, Alina Kim's, I have it here, so I'm looking at the, to make sure I get the title right. It's called Adopted Territory by Alina J. Kim, um, Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Politics of Belonging. And one of the things that she says, it's been, um, a while since I've read it, but one of the things that I took from it was the particular um, American notions around family and 
fulfillment and happiness um, that uh, arose in the 50s and 60s and, you know, post-World War II, and that that set the stage for this idea of having children as being about personal fulfillment um, and sort of a right, you know. And then coupled with this uh, kind of missionary impulse to save these children um, when the, you know, when images of war orphans uh, were coming into the United States. So, so you have these things, among many other factors, I think, but you have these things converging so that this notion of personal fulfillment and, and family life and what an ideal family is, and then these um, this opportunity to uh, be, you know, white saviors and go in and, and fix this problem um, became a very, a very powerful um, draw. And, you know, this is something that I can't speak too knowledgeably to or too specifically to, but there's also a lot of money changing hands. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that, that was um, sort of revelatory in in Alina Kim's book was the fact that the result of these uh, adoptions and the ease of this, you know, phenomenon of exporting children was that um, uh, the Korean social service infrastructure didn't have to uh, develop, you know. So so there was this other way of just um, removing this problem. Um, you know, and there's so many, so many ways to go in, in that, but, but that, um, seems important to call out too, that there, there was, uh, economic benefit, um, and economic arrangements between the countries that just, you know, all of these different factors facilitated this system that had nothing to do really with the welfare of individual children or Korean families, but everything to do with fulfilling um, desires of white American families. And, you know, and I say that with some delicacy because I'm not talking about like individual decisions to adopt or individual families. I'm talking about the systems that um, facilitated and made it appealing uh, for this to be the result. Yeah. Well, because of the, the age in which you specifically were adopted two years old, instead of say six years old, you don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of, or you don't have memories to uh, recollect and, having not found your birth mother in your search. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about art making in the absence of, of those memories, in the absence of the people you were searching to encounter, but also you've talked about the absence of having someone tell you what you were like when you were that mm-hmm. age, um, even more than me- remembering it yourself. Cause obviously most two year olds aren't, aren't, you're not remembering a lot from when you're two, but you are remembering a lot of what people say about you when you were two. Um, but could you talk about one or more of your projects, redress or, or guidelines for arrival and transfer in, in relationship to, to this question of, um, of absence and, and disjunction and art making? Yeah, so the uh, redress project that you're referring to is um, I, you know, I came in a 
I, you know, I came, somebody had dressed me um, in, you know, many layers. It was probably all of the clothing that I had. And one of the articles of clothing was this little simple dress. And um, at a certain point in the writing of Litany for the Long Moment, um, I realized that I had lost this dress. And, um, and, you know, after a while of being kind of distressed about that, I thought, well, what if I tried to remake it? Um, so much of what I'm trying to do in my writing, or I was trying to do in that book, was claiming a lineage or claiming something where it didn't fully exist. And so that idea that, well, I can make this myself and see, you know, through a, a, an art practice and see what that feels like. Um, so I made, um, and you mentioned before 200,000 Korean adoptees, and this was a number that it's just really hard to get your head around. Um, so I tried to imagine, um, I think a lot of what I'm trying to do in my writing and, and my artwork is, is just trying to foreground individual lives, um, because it's really easy to talk about numbers, but underneath all those numbers um, and abstract language, there are individual lives. And so I was trying to get a sense of, you know, how might one represent those individual lives? And so I settled on um, uh, one dress for every thousand to represent um, Korean adoptees. And um, I handmade these dresses, these 200 dresses um, for a uh, specific installation um, a couple years ago. And the memory that you're referring to, the memory tag, each dress had a memory tag on it because, um, you know, as you said, there was something about not just the fact that I didn't have memories, but that, you know, as I was raising my own children, um, a real intimacy was being able to share with them what they were like, what we treasured about those early years. And that was something that felt like a real loss for adoptees. So I had this idea that I wanted this installation to have some uh, points of entry for people viewing it. And so the what I came up with was um, would people be willing to share a cherished memory that we could gift, you know, symbolically gift, symbolically redress um, these uh, adoptees with some sort of um, memory? And this would be a way for viewers to uh, make a personal connection with these individual lives as well. Yeah. In this line of thought, I, I also wondered that in one of your essays about hybridity, you say hybridity is a formal response to the threat of annihilation as an erasure, silencing, abnegation. And later in the same essay, hybridity in the face of uncertainty bears it, holds it up to the light. And I don't think you were speaking specifically to the irresolvable gap due to adoption, but it certainly feels like these aspects of hybrid work uh, like these projects you just mentioned, but also just how you approach orphanhood and adoption from many different vantage points, poetry, prose, image, fabric. 
visiting Korea, taking classes in Korean feels like a way of holding up uncertainty to the light, bearing the uncertainty, illuminating the uncertainty. I didn't know if that felt true to you. If there's something useful about multiple modes, shifting and crossing forms as a way to get as many angles as possible on something. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that um, I really appreciate that um, reference to holding it up to the light in the context of the dresses, um, because I think there is something about sort of making the difficulty explicit and also inviting others in. So part of what bearing it um, in that reference to me means is um, naming it, showing it, and maybe, maybe, you know, just maybe asking others to help bear it. And that was um, something that could happen in the installation that couldn't really happen in the same way um, in the text, you know, in the book, which was more sort of closed off and, and um, ended, you know, so that there was a different way that I could bear it, um, the different way that these uh, challenges, difficulties, these um, ruptures could be held up to the light in the physical form and in the space that uh, people moved through. Um, and, you know, it was moving and helpful in ways that I hadn't anticipated. It was, um, you know, I hesitate to use the word healing, but there, but there was a shared sense of holding um, complexity as a result of that installation. Um, people shared, you know, really joyful memories of their children and of their own childhood, um, but also really difficult ones. Um, this one woman had written that um, the dresses reminded her of losing her child, her first child um, as an infant. And there was something um, about seeing the little white dress that gave her a sense of peace and a sense of connection. And that was completely unexpected, but that bearing it and bearing it in um, in a physical space, in a physical way, um, took it somewhere that uh, perhaps it couldn't have been in the text itself, in the text alone. There's this one part of Dicte that where Cha addresses her own mother who lived through Japanese occupation. And she says, the national song forbidden to be sung, birthless and orphan, they take from you your tongue. And I, I was thinking about that in relationship to this project you've been discussing, but also, I don't know if it was the Alexander Chi article or elsewhere that, but the the being forbidden to speak your own name in Korean cuts you off from your ancestors mm -hmm. and your ancestral line. And even though Cha wasn't herself an orphan, it does feel like that line about orphanhood or about rupture. And then when we think about that in terms of the this preponderance of adoption between the two countries, America and South Korea, that I don't want to go too far with this, but it, it almost feels like, and I think you intimated uh, something about this earlier, that in a weird way, your rupture 
is both a rupture from Koreanness and a rupture that is Koreanness. That something about that um, rupture is within the story. Maybe that was something I was trying to reach towards around the story within the language, the Korean language. But I, does that strike you as 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 true, or paradoxically true? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to hear that uh, quote from Dictay, um, there is, you know, and, and, and this is just my sort of experience of it, but there does seem to be something um, Korean about this idea of orphanhood in the sense, I think, that um, orphanhood is this sort of um, existential, like ontological problem, you know, orphanhood is terrifying, um, ontologically. And that has a resonance, I think, with one's culture, one's language, with everything that makes Koreanness Korean, um, being suppressed, being denied, being obliterated. Um, so I think that that is the little thread that I'm pulling through. I wanted to talk about how maybe we've been talking about rupture and disjunction and gaps and absences, but I also wanted to like touch on something that might be more counterintuitive and how the erasure that occurs with adoption or certain stories of migration could lead to story making or myth making. Because you have at the end of the book a quote by Monica Uzarovich that says, of all the crimes committed by colonizers and their ilk, this is perhaps one of the most insidious, condemning the descendants of their victims to a strange reality, one in which they must employ magical thinking, a personal and collective mythos, to better understand their forcible eradicated histories. And then you have this conversation with the writer Nicole Chung, who was also adopted by white parents. And she suggests that adoptees are natural storytellers because you grow up telling your own origin story over and over again, telling it, considering its gaps, wondering whether it's true sometimes, but often also all of this happening under the spell of the story making of the parents, of the white parents who are comforting their child by making them feel like uh, it was all for the best uh, and simplifying the story in a way so that you can grow up feeling yeah. like there was a sense of um, the best made out of a difficult situation and that everyone was doing right. it out of concern for the child um, right. on right. all sides. Um, and I guess I wondered about this, this notion that feels not the same notion between Nicola Monica's statements, but some maybe kindred notions around erasure and the ground as being a, a one sort of ground for story making or myth making. Absolutely. That seems very resonant for me. And I think the, the thing that it makes me think about is um, um, imagination and imagining something into being. Um, I talk about it a lot as, as, claiming, but there's a different, um, uh, nuance to it as well, that it, it can be a starting point or an impulse for, um, 
voice, for for imaginative inquiry, for possibility. Um, the site of the wound can also be a site of uh, imaginative um, um, creation. And I guess, you know, you had asked the question about um, gaps and silences in art making. And I'm uh, the thing, one of the things that I'm working on right now is um, also, you know, sort of still inspired by Cha and about Koreanness, but it's um, around uh, creating uh, a fake archive of a Korean American artist, woman artist, who would have had the same um, sort of, uh, would have been a contemporary of Cha's, who also um, could have been um, the life span of my birth mother, of my Korean birth mother, and locating her in New York and giving her a life there. So sort of imagining an alternative narrative for a Korean birth mother that isn't only um, one of destitution, desperation, um, this sort of caricature of a uh, birth mother, but that it perhaps um, asks, asks questions about what choices a woman can make in her life and for what purposes. Um, and, you know, in, in doing some thinking around that project, I've uh, been led to um, the artist Zoe Leonard she creates this um, archive of photographs for a fictionalized black entertainer from the 40s um, for a film and in so doing creates something that is plausible but fictional um, to represent those stories that were not told that haven't been part of the official uh, record of the time. And so this idea of allowing, um, you know, you, you refer to it as storytelling and I'm thinking storytelling and this sort of imaginative um, creation, um, allowing the, uh, allowing this, the official story not to end with what's silenced, but to, have that be a generative space as well. And of course, um, in addition to the um, photographic archive that I just talked about, this is um, informed by some of the work of Cydia Hartman um, and her term is critical fabulation. Um, and she's speaking very specifically to the um, narratives and stories that are uh, erased um, by um, slavery um, and the transatlantic slave trade, but um, I think what I'm thinking about is sort of adjacent to uh, some of her uh, frameworks as well. That sounds amazing. Does it have a Does it have a title? Um, so the overall project is called Artist Unknown Korean, um, and this little book um, project that exists within it is uh, the Song Healy Archives. For now, that's the working title. I'm going to ask you my one, my one overlong question for this interview. So um, I ask for your patience as I ask this one, but I want to read something you've quoted from the poet Myung Mi Kim um, and then ask you a question about something that I stumbled upon as I was researching the phenomenon of adoption between South Korea and the United States. 
So Myung Mi Kim said, I could be, and am often, variously hyphenated as a Korean-American poet, a Korean-American woman poet, an immigrant Korean-American woman poet, a Korean-American woman poet of the diaspora, a bilingual Korean-American woman poet, and so on. These markers are ethnicity, gender, displacement, migration, and linguistic-affiliated. However, they tend to reiterate the quote-unquote purity of languages, the inviability of nation boundaries, and fixity of categories that allied the complex geopolitical and historical forces that produce these hyphenations. And I, I wanted, I, I love this quote. And uh, it also, I think, enriches the Damiche quote we read earlier uh, around not being tra- transnationally equal, these two languages. Um, and I want to take this idea that these hyphenated identities, despite seeming hybrid and nuanced, actually treat each side of the hyphen as something pure and fixed. And I wanted to ask something about something I discovered as I read about adoption and why there's been so many South Korean adoptions over the last century. This is going to be a superficial sort of sharing of information I discovered to see whether you have information or thoughts or have encountered it in your, in your own, in your own uh, reading. Part of what informs this dynamic, as we've discussed, is the American intervention on the Korean peninsula. But another part seems to be the Korean notion of Koreanness, which seems to have at least partially arisen as a response to Japanese occupation when the Japanese asserted that Koreans and Japanese were ethnically the same people, while at the same time suppressing their ability to speak their own language or even use their own names that during that time, Koreans began to assert that they were ethnically distinct, along with a notion of being of pure blood, and that Koreanness was passed down by blood patrilineally. And because of this belief in culture being passed down through bloodlines, there was a bias within Korea against adoption. And I was reading uh, of an anthropologist who wrote uh, that in Korean patrilineal blood culture, Koreanness is passed from parent to child as long as the parents have pure Korean blood. And this transference of Koreanness is especially notable when the Korean father gives his pure Korean blood to his Korean child. And that's what makes reunions of um, along the patrilineal line of adoptees with their birth families uh, smoother, apparently, than along the matrilineal line, but also there was, there's historically been a hesitancy for South Koreans to adopt Korean babies who wouldn't be part of passing down the culture through blood. I don't know if this was something in your own exploration around Koreanness, uh, your own, uh, your own Koreanness, if this was something that you encountered and, and, and so in what way is this familiar to you? So not that, Last bit about um, reunion. Um, that's really interesting. I it was not something that I um, had encountered. Um, I did have some sense of um, the importance of patrilineal 
lineage um, and these books that I think I um, I think I reference in um, litany um, these books of um, this lineage books called Chakpo um, that trace generation after generation and and keep these records you know as among the most important records of a family um, so that I had encountered and and you know in encountering that as a as an adoptee there was a sense of you know sort of uh insult to injury right that 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 then um the uh orphan child is you know completely erased from any sort of lineage recording as well so that seemed to be sort of uh doubly wounding but i hadn't um encountered that and i don't know um I don't know that I can speak to too many uh, reunions for which I would know whether that had um, had carried out. Mm. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say. No, I was, but I was also just more broadly curious about this sense of um, being of an, an ethnically distinct group, the assertion of it being an ethnically distinct group of people that yeah. um, informs their way of viewing. Um, the phenomenon of adoption at all. It does make me think about, um, you know, some of what we were talking about earlier in the sort of social infrastructure. Um, I don't know which cause or effect there, but a reluctance to facilitate those um, adoptions within Korea, whether it was, you know, in terms of uh, sort of institutional infrastructure based on, you know, um, some of the, uh, characteristics that you're pointing out, but it does make me think about, um, the social conditions in a different way as well. The other thing that I discovered along this question around gender also is that, and I don't think obviously this isn't unique to Korea, but a stigma around uh, unwed mothers that, um, that if you were an unwed mother, uh, in South Korea, somehow that was connected in these discussions around patrilineal Koreanness. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was an extra stigma against you. I do think that misogyny in Korea, in traditional Korean um, culture, that is is real, and so I don't um, I don't question that in terms of the uh, conditions under which women felt like they had no, um, no choice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was hoping maybe you'd read one page for us from litany for the long moment, sort of to set up maybe a, a transition to talking about more about the American side of this book. Literary theorist Stanley Fish says, that sentences promise nothing less than lessons and practice in the organization of the world. Language creates us, he says. If language creates us, can language also destroy? On a night in late spring, with a dusting of snow on the ground, an American woman, daughter of Portuguese immigrants, says to the Korean child disembarking from a 20-hour flight, I am your mother. Language is not a handmaiden to perception. It is perception, says Fish. It gives shape to what would otherwise be inert and dead. 
the shaping power of language cannot be avoided. A new mother takes shape. Is the first mother destroyed? I've been listening to Mary Kim Arnold read from Litany for the Long Moment. Well, I wanted partly to have you read this to move us to the American part of the Korean-American equation, but also just want to mention that I love how you frame this question in terms of linguistics, wondering if your American mother saying, I am your mother, destroys something in the process, but, but especially also in light of your discussion of how quickly adoptees lose their primary language on average, uh, also in light of the notion that Don Me brought up about the uneven power dynamic between the two languages, and then the power dynamic between your Korean birth mother and your American adoptive mother. But I wanted to take that as a segue to talk about a different sort of erasure, which is that of the Korean War in the American imaginary. Because unlike the Vietnam War, which is repeatedly and visibly grappled with, even though mostly in a problematic way, is it's grappled with in the imagination in some way. With with the Korean War, it feels like there's a certain amnesia or absence of any moral reckoning. Um, you know, there were 4 million people killed and up to a million people displaced. And so it's a, I mean, I feel like we could call it a giant silence and an ignorance, but it feels like a, a an ignorance of a different scale. Ignorance just feels like it's pervasive in, in the United States. It's like, yes, Americans know who Harriet Tubman is and yes americans know some things about the vietnam war but very few white americans know much of black history or much about the Viet vietnam war or vietnam in a nuanced way but there are these markers but the korean war feels like um as you mentioned in your the title of your poem forgotten war it's called the forgotten war and dami che's book hardly war also is engaging with this notion of what seems to me to be almost complete annihilation of the Korean war from the American imagination. I didn't know if you had some thoughts on, on that. And I was also curious in light of any thoughts you might have you, your American father was a, was a vet. If there were discussions that happened with you and him or in your family about the Korean wars, simply because he, he fought in an American war, not the Korean war. But um, what are your thoughts on this aspect of erasure and inequality between the two parts of the hyphen and the Korean war? Yeah. So I'll start with the easiest part first, which is there were no conversations in my family about um, the Korean war, about uh, my father's time in, in the war um, or even um decisively what war I think I have learned from uh, my aunt you know in more recent years that it was World War II that he fought in and I don't know whether he actually saw combat um, but mostly anything about Korea anything about war um, was a huge um, and sort of aggressive silence I think in my family. So I had no context or uh, capacities to kind of grapple with that, at least as a younger person. Um, you know, the, the as I was trying to 
situate myself and the phenomenon of adoption, um, I kept returning to the Korean War because it is a sort of point of origin and it was really um, this this idea of, of forgotten war um, as a term uh, to keep coming up. And, and of course, that is in a particular point of view. It's only um, forgotten to those who don't, you know, haven't had direct experience with it. And so even the naming of it or the way that it's talked about suggests this power dynamic, suggests this... Um, silence gap, uh, rupture, um, and, and, you know, attempt at, um, erasure. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure how to talk about this except to say that in, you know, in the, in the films that I was watching about it, in the, in the reading that, that I was doing about it, you know, most of what I had, of course, was um, stories uh, of American veterans, of um, perspectives of military engagement, um, you know, these maps and uh, diagrams and descriptions of um, battles all of which, you know, and, and strategy, discussions of strategy, all of which really um, just sort of obliterated the impact on um, civilians. And this is a war in which the majority of the deaths were of civilians. And that in itself seems like something that, you know, seems particularly um, American to want to forget. Um the quote that's sort of rattling around in my head at the moment, um, I think it was in relation to the Battle of Nogun-ri, um, and it was something like all Koreans north and south look the same to the Americans. And um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even sure where, where to go with that, but that I think that speaks to the desire, um, the American desire to want to forget, um, to focus on a few key battles, to focus on the military strategy of the uh, Inchon Landing, of MacArthur, of uh, MASH, you know, um, which I haven't actually seen. But I think all of that speaks to a desire to tell a simplistic story, to pick up on the thread that you were talking about, this simplistic story of, um, you know, this limited police action, um, this. I don't even think that story is being told even of that. Like I'm th thinking of police action. Well, I'm guessing that most people are hearing this for the first hearing, even that for the first time, Yeah. like is story making of any nature. I mean, if you look, obviously there's story making around the Korean war, if you look for it, but if you walk around, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna know about the movie Platoon and the new Spike Lee movie, to, uh -huh. to Five Bloods. You're gonna have these, however problematic, cultural markers for Vietnam, and what it meant for the American psyche. But I wonder yeah. about whether anyone has any markers, even the claim that it's a it was a limited police action rather than a war. Yeah, if that's news news to the average American. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I um you know. Having done the reading I've done, I assume that many have. <laughs> um, but yeah, that uh, there was something about um, my 
reading um, about the Korean War that I came away with uh, sort of reaffirmation of that um, American overconfidence. We're going to go in with a limited police action, Truman called it. Um, and, you know, this was in the um, uh, invasion by the North Koreans into the South was um, in June of 1950. And, the, you know, I think the current thought was the thought then was we'll be home by Christmas or something, you know, that it was very short term intervention. Um, and uh, of course, it it went on for um, three years and it's still not officially ended. Um, the other sort of notable thing that I came away with, and, you know, I'm hesitant to say this again, and, and you can, um, maybe fill in if there are things that I'm missing that you know of, but in what I understand of it, you know, in the sort of military, um, strategies that I've been able to kind of glean and follow of what happened, all of the major cities of the Korean Peninsula were basically destroyed. You know, uh, Seoul was captured and recaptured three or four times, I think. Um, the, uh, the battles took place all up and down the peninsula and really um, just decimated the cities. And all of the civilians, of course, had to flee and were often, you know, trapped behind these um, battle lines, and, and which really resulted in these horrifying um, killings of civilians. Um, I'm just going to pause there because I feel like I'm getting into territory that's a little over my head. Okay. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to pull out a complete thought. Yeah. Well, I was hoping in light of the this discussion about war and the legacy of war, you could talk about Sento for Trust and Reconciliation, and then the final piece in the permanent collection, which feel like they're dealing with the legacy of war, uh, particularly the latter poem, which is the most formally adventurous poem in the book. And uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it and the ways it's looking at, um, what seems like the ways in which it's looking at museums as an extension or somehow an extension of the legacy of war themselves. I mean, there's a couple things coming together, I think, in those um, last pieces that you reference. Um, I guess I have to start with a little bit of a story. Um, I was at the Seattle Art Museum in um, the early 90s, and I came across this uh, exhibition of East Asian lacquers. And for some reason, I saved the exhibition catalog and have referred to it because there were a lot of beautiful um, photographs in it. Um, but the thing that I want to mention is that it, you know, it went through uh, with a couple pages describing each of the different uh, traditions in, you know, in lacquer tra production tradition in Japan and China. And when it came to Korea, um, there was only like a very brief paragraph and maybe less than a page of um, images from this particular exhibition. And the text was something like, um, you know, much of Korean art has been destroyed as a result of centuries of invasion and warfare. And that was sort of it. And it really struck me um, 
And I guess I should back up by saying, if this wasn't already clear, that I, I grew up with a real hunger for Koreanness, to see anything Korean, to um, read Korean authors, to sort of uh, any markers of Korean culture. And in the time that I was growing up, there was really, uh, you know, Chinese was known, Japanese was known through restaurants and through uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, respectively. And um, but Korean wasn't even known, like the word Korea sometimes would bring people up short. So there was this sense of general um, absence of Koreanness. So I had this um, hunger for representations of Koreanness. And then to come across this um, exhibition where I thought there would be something to kind of hold on to, and then to be confronted with this relatively um, dismissive, uh, brief description of what Korean art was or wasn't has really stayed with me. And more recently, I was um, working with someone at the RISD Museum and had requested, I had asked a question about the Korean collection, of which I had heard that they had quite an extens uh, extensive one. And um, this very uh, kind staff person printed me, you know, pages and pages of these um, Korean objects that they had in the collection. And Within, with the exception, there were maybe like 1,100 objects documented, and with the exception of maybe the most recent 20, they were all um, these um, sort of more uh, ancient artifacts and, you know, like a spoon or a shoe or something, and they were all listed uh, as of unknown provenance. And this was resonant for me for lots of reasons, some of which you can probably surmise about, you know, adoption and being taken out of cultural context. Um, all of which is to say, it made me really think about how does a museum have what it has? Uh, what is the process by which objects are brought into a museum? And if a museum is, and, and it is a kind of legitimizing um, institution, um, what do we then know about the way its collected items are framed and described? And so this language of Korean art is not available, centuries of warfare, which of course, you know, um, represents just centuries and, and lives and loss. And so the use of that language really struck me. And then the use of the way these objects are talked about out of their cultural context, like unknown provenance, or uh, many of the um, objects were described as, you know, artist unknown Korean. And there was this very compelling, um, this very compelling set of questions about what does a museum actually do and what is its role? And of course, a lot of this, um, you know, in the, in the last several years, uh, so much of community response to um, various museum exhibitions that present work in a particular way that don't uh, really engage uh, the community that it's representing in ways of talking about work, um, calls for repatriation of objects. All of this is in the background of my thinking as well. And so there's a certain way that I would wander into museums, which are these, you know, sort of sacred spaces, and, and we know how they're presented and positioned and the way we're supposed to feel about the preservation and presentation of these objects. And, um, you know, there was a certain point where it just all seemed like 
it was a glorified tomb, um, one that we were not um, really facing in any real way. And an earlier version of this poem had, you know, somebody writing a grant proposal, and the proposal was to dig up the ground underneath the gallery and find the bodies buried there, you know, which is a little overblown, but that was the way I started feeling um, about museums, you know, which yeah. is, was very difficult for me because I, I, I love seeing art, you know. Well, the poem is incredible. And in the foreground, you have these quote unquote adopted items lifted out of, lifted out of context, given this, this sort of um, inscrutable non-specificity to them, um, mm-hmm. not demanding us to engage with anything about history as we view them, really, except in the simple, most simple way. But in the background, you have the opposite. You have an enormous amount of specificity, a lot of words from documents. What, what are we reading when we when we move our eyes away from the centered object in these poems and look at the words that are behind the object. Yeah, so that is all text from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And it is, um, it, you know, it's a very long report, and, and this is just a section from it around the exhumations of these uh, massacre sites. And the objects are objects that have been um, exhumed from these sites. Um, and these were atrocities that the South Korean uh, state um, perpetrated against their own citizens who were um, suspected of communist sympathies. And so I wanted to just kind of bring both the sort of scale, you know, you described it as as lots of words, and it was just sort of the scale and the relentlessness of these objects, of these massacres. Um, there was something that I wanted to put up against the sterility of an object um, talked about and framed in this very particular way um, that just kind of call into question how institutional language, how and what it obscures. You've said before that that the fish and the dove is about war in the literal sense, and we see that both with poems that engage with the forgotten war, the quote-unquote forgotten war, with specific battles, with the legacy of war uh, in, in the museum setting and with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But it, you've also said it is about how being in all male spaces as a woman has felt like a kind of battle, requiring constant vigilance and preparation. And that feels like a, uh, a big part of this book, too. The, um, the battle of, at the beginning, literally the battle of Semiramis to become queen and lead her army. But that battle coming in this book also to growing up as a woman in the United States. And it and the book opens with two epigraphs, both about war and perhaps not coincidentally both by men. Uh, so we start in a all-male space of engagement with war. So I was hoping we could talk about women in both of these contexts, women in war, but also 
the battle women fight in everyday life, since both of those are threads in The Fish and the Dove. But before we do, I was hoping you could introduce and read for us In the City of Men and Comfort. In the City of Men. For a time I worked in a building adorned with the head of a man. Let's call it the man's head building. And everywhere in the building one could not escape the heads of men. Men in the elevators, men in the hallways, men in the cafe taking up chairs, men carrying newspapers and briefcases, carrying cups of coffee and soda, men laughing, men shouting, men gesturing with their hands, men in the conference room, men blocking entryways, men at the refrigerator letting the door hang open. Men took their time. One cornered me in the file closet and said, oh, you know you want it. One said, hey, get me a coffee. And when I glared at him, he said, I forgot there was a war against men. One said, ni hao, wonton soup, egg foo young. One said, no tiki, no shirty. One said, want to take you shopping for a two-piece. One said, come with me on my boat. One said, I'll bet you're great in the sack. Another one agreed. One told me he had been to Korea, said, you don't know how good you've got it. Here. He shook his head at me and then turned away. They don't treat women so good there, he said. Um, and that was, uh, you know, the, there was something that was actually kind of fun um, about writing it uh, to just sort of capture the sort of absurdity of, you know, this idea of like men everywhere. <laughs> I tried to go to sort of cornering and, and like lingering in these um, entryways. Uh, and I think that, you know, is, it, it was really a poem of, um, of rage and frustration and as is perhaps uh, Comfort, uh, which is the other poem you suggested. Comfort. I did not learn much about history on my back pressed against the door of his Japanese car while the ghosts of our ancestors paced in the parking lot. Did not learn much from his approach. I know your people hate my people, but you are too pretty to be left standing here alone. That night and nights after, it was not empire we spoke of, not occupation in our mouths. Years later, on a busy street, and then upstairs, he tried to bring it all back, pinned me down on my own floor. There are many ways to remember in a room barely large enough to lay one tatami mat down. And that, um, that poem is really, I was thinking about uh, Korean comfort women um, and in some of the oral histories I had read of these women who were um, forced into sexual slavery by the uh, Japanese Imperial Army, um, I think leading up to uh, and through World War II, um, that in some of these oral histories, um, women would describe the rooms that they were confined in as barely large enough to lay one tatami mat down. And that felt like um, just sort of a bit of an homage to uh, those women. I had the honor of reading a early draft of a, a book coming out in, I think in January 
uh, called Body of Empire by Mariko Nagai, uh, which is about um, the slavery of of women in in Imperial Japan, um, of Japanese women, of Korean women, of Burmese women, of mm-hmm. many women. Um, it's probably the most haunting book I've ever read in in my yeah. life, and a lot of it is alternating testimony between women, comfort women, and men. But one of the things that I think that leapt out to me about that book too is because you you move between this the space of uh, of being a woman in in Korea and being a woman in America is that in in that book she also documents how when the Americans come and occupy Japan after the defeat of the Japanese they just sort of the men just sort of the American men just sort of slot into the position that the Japanese men had with these women. So they, um, the, the Japanese men in a sense are demoted from using the women as slaves and the American men become sort of a, um, it's almost like the men become, um, can, it can be of any provenance essentially. And then in in this machinery, the body of empire. Right. Right. Um, it's one thing that crosses uh, cultures, uh, misogyny. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking also about around this, around your dual investigation, Korea and America and misogyny, was also that if we think about the lives of Francesca Woodman and Teresa Hakyung Cha, who both died very young, one of suicide and the other being raped and murdered, and then think of Samiramis's mother who kills herself. But I also think of a quote from Litany for the Long Moment from the poet Myung Mi Kim, uh, which I thought was really great. If Korean history is missing from the master narratives of the West and women are absent from recorded Korean history, the Korean-American woman is invisible in both discourses. Um, I don't know if that brings up any thoughts for you, but one one thought I w- would love to hear about that it brings up for me as I read it now is some of the writing you've done around um, one of the earliest Korean woman writers who wrote a memoir that sort of breaks form for the tradition of Korean writing. But if you had any if you, if you had any thoughts about just hearing that quote read back to you, also I'd, I'd love to hear those too. I think I wanted to include the, um, you know, within this context of talking about war, um, the role of women um, for a couple different reasons. I think, you know, not only because in most accounts of wars, as we've sort of talked about, women are absent um, except when they're being used, um, uh, you know, raped or uh, used as sexual slaves. Um, And there's sort of, or, you know, used as this kind of currency uh, lever of power between men. Um, And that, for me, you know, sort of hearkened back to Semiramis, who in the mythology, um, there's this uh, way that she's talked about as being the most lascivious of the uh, oriental 
queens. Um, I think that's a quote that I encountered somewhere. And, you know, that that too um, is, is, it comes from uh, a male imaginary, right? That, that you're only um, there as a body to be used in these ways. And so that, you know, I was thinking about that and the way it intersects with the um, vulnerability of women. And of course, uh, I don't think we've uh, touched on this yet, but of, of course, some of this um, was written um, in the lead up to the 2016 election when, you know, not only are we seeing the way a powerful woman is represented and talked about in, in uh, Hillary Clinton, um, but also the comments um, that are, you know, leaked, the recordings that are leaked of um, of what Trump says about women. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, the uh, Kavanaugh testimony. So, you know, all of these things to sort of contribute to this question of like, um, how are women talked about? How are women used? How is girlhood and, and womanhood, the American aspect of it, you know, how is, how is that just this constant, um, uh, battle, um, for personhood, um, and, you know, to, to sort of circle back to the, um, mythology around, you know, like, like women can either be, uh, um, invisible or used sexually. And there's something, um, obviously there's something so flattening about that, but in the, in the case of Samiramis, um, it was just sort of funny to me that there was no allowance for, um, the complexity of a woman leader, a woman warrior, you know, and all of, uh, that nuance, but that, she also had to um, sort of titillate <laughs> the imaginations of men by being the cruelest, by being the most um, uh, sexualized, you know. And and there was something that felt resonant um, about that too, uh, just in terms of thinking about what it means to be um, a woman in contemporary America. I want to bring this back to form again with the hybrid form, because it feels like there's a paradox also there that maybe relates to this question of invisibility and hypervisibility, that it's both a way to break form or to refuse a received form and to create form, perhaps the way we were discussing how the, the erasure of orphanhood is a place of absence and fragments, but it's also a place of storytelling and myth-making. I think of a no the notion of the long moment in your book, the litany for the long moment, how in Francesca Woodman's photography, the longer that the shutter is open, the more it takes in. So the more you're, the longer you're looking in some ways, the less one sees the person blurs and becomes transparent until they disappear. If you leave the shutter open long enough and yet something about what she is capturing in the disappearance or in the transparency is, is so deeply evocative that maybe it feels like it's capturing something more real. Um, and this notion touches on so many different things you've said over the years, for instance, in describing the hypervisibility of growing up Korean with white parents in a white neighborhood, you say being visible is not the same as being seen. And the long moment also feels connected to something you've said about, the word orphanhood, 
how it is defined by something that is lacking and how the word adoptee is entirely passive. You, you become an adoptee due to the actions of others. And you ask the question, can something defined by lack be knowable or speakable? And you also wonder what actions and what agency an adoptee can take. But I sort of feel like the way you create and then inhabit and embody a new form is the answer to these questions. But I want, but how do you feel about this question? Do you feel it can be knowable or speakable, something that's defined by lack? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, writing and art making is as close to knowability as I can get. You know, it's the it's the way that I try to um, make. I think making explicit what is unknowable or unsayable sort of um, breaks something open a little bit, meaning that it allows a little bit of light in, um, allows space for uh, other kinds of telling or other kinds of knowing. Um, I think that there are other ways of knowing something too. And and so part of what, uh, you know, to go back to your early question about uh, moving across forms, I think bodily knowing and um, sort of claiming as valuable knowledge what's inhabited, um, what the what is in, in embodied, um, you know, is a different kind of knowing from narrative knowing. And so for me, it's been really important to move across those ways of knowing. Um, I'm not sure if that gets at your. It does, but I want to. I want to stay with this question of the difference between embodied knowing and narrative knowing, because in a way, it feels like when I'm what I'm reaching for around this idea of hybrid form breaking things, but also maybe also making a new body, or a mm-hmm, new mm-hmm. Or, or a new vessel, um, mm-hmm. one that is that more reflects the person who's doing the breaking and making. Um, I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts about linguistic embodiment, but also why you think there's this distinct focus in the work of Therese Hakyung Cha and also to some extent Myung Mi Kim of not only the physicality of the Korean language, but the physical and anatomical requirements of making the sounds that form Korean speech. You you say in Litany two things that leap out to me. One, I am struck by the difficulty of saying one thing, but wanting to say something else. And two, that Korean is a physical language modeled around the mouth and its anatomy. And in Dicte, we see that a lot, the mouth and its anatomy, but not just in Dicte. Cha has a video installation called Mouth to Mouth, and the mouths abstracted from everything else become very uncanny and strange and sometimes frighteningly other. And she has a performance piece called Avogle Voix, which means blind voice. And she blindfolds herself with a blindfold that says voice. So the word voice is over her eyes, blinding her. She gags herself with one that says blind. And, And to return to the beginning, I think of the girl in the story Rabbits, who gouges her eyes out of all the rabbits before she puts on their skins. So what are your thoughts about this focus on the tongue and the palate and the lips and the throat 
and the eyes and the mouth being troubled by putting the, the quote-unquote wrong words on the wrong orifices, or this video of making the mouth not seem like a mouth. Do you have any thoughts on what this investigation is that you also seem captivated by and and engage with in your own way? I think for me, part of the bringing back to the physical body and um, the sensory um, experience is is foregrounded because of uh, womanness and uh, Koreanness in in white spaces. Um, the kind of generally speaking, the kind of vulnerability of the body um, and in terms of the language question, that difficulty of actually pronouncing unfamiliar sounds. So something that seems um, abstract becomes physically uh, enacted and embodied. Um, and that that, you know, that attention to that physicality speaks to um, or leads to the idea of what is maybe literally unspeakable. And, um, you know, I know uh, I'm thinking of a Young Me Kim poem in which, you know, there are two consonants, there's like a page of two consonants um, put together uh, that is, you know, quite literally unsayable. So I think that part of your, uh, part of what your question um, is leading me to is the relationship between, um, you know, a, a foreign language being difficult to learn, not only for, you know, vocabulary and, and pronunciation, but there is a, a way that um, um, the body, you know, the mouth, uh, there are things that are just sounds that are difficult to pronounce mm -hmm. um, in different languages and certainly um, in Korean that we're talking about now, Korean to English. And um, and then, you know, I guess um, other wise just also thinking about the visibility of the body of a woman of a, a korean american woman um of a young woman um i was thinking a lot about that too just about the way um the a woman's body is marked um i know you're asking something about form that i'm trying to find my way back to um well let me ask you about one of the things I quoted of yours where you say the, that Korean is a physical language modeled around the mouth and its anatomy. Is there something particular? You, you've talked about how, of course, the unfamiliar sounds in any language, but is there something particular about Korean that makes it more modeled around the anatomy of the mouth than, than the average language? Well, I think this was something that I came across in like a Korean language workbook, that there were these images of how the uh, shape of the letters were actually meant to mimic or reference the shape that the mouth took or the um, organs that were, you know, the, the oh, way wow. the tongue hit the teeth. Um, and I think there's an image um, uh, in dictate and um, an image from a language workbook in litany that sort of shows that that they're the shape of the letters uh, correspond to something that you know that the sound the the way the mouth has to form to make the sound yeah that's amazing i love that yeah yeah 
Sophia Samatar has an essay about uh, the short story rabbits that we talked about at the beginning where, where she says that the story is about becoming a writer and she quotes a line from it that goes, so long as writing, including the act of not writing is writing, then perhaps inevitably writing is my fate, which I I just love that line. Um, And I wanted to end with your writing across books because your books in a way feel like they're part of the same body or if not that they, they birth each other into being in some way. For instance, you said that Mm -hmm. a lot of the war reading you did for litany for the long moment became the soil from which the fish and the dove arose and that your chapbook between night and night were once love poems meant to be in the fish and the dove that you removed and collected in a separate project. So, um, just wanted to hear any thoughts you had about the interbook connection. Um, and if you could talk to us about that and also perhaps what you're working on now a little bit more, you've, you've tipped your hat on that a little bit, tipped your hand. I mean, a little bit on that. Um, but what the questions that are animating your work um, at the moment, too? One way to talk about that chapbook, um, just to circle back to the poetry collection for a minute, is that um, the initial impulse to include it was around um, asking or trying to imagine women being allowed to be known in all of their roles and complexities. Um, there, you know, I, I worried that, uh, I always worry that there's a danger when talking about, um, uh, violence inflicted on women, whether directly or obliquely referencing that, you know, you're sort of re, um, re-harming, uh, doing, doing harm again. And, and so part of the impulse to include this, uh, this series of love poems was around like, what if a woman was allowed to be in all fullness, in all um, aspects of that experience? So that, you know, is one thing that then, you know, I do think of all of my work as speaking to each other. I love um, what you said about it, books birthing each other. And really all of my, all the things that I'm working on right now um, have Koreanness, have identity, have uh, womanhood, um, the legacy of war, intergenerational trauma, all of that is the soil uh, from which everything that I'm interested in arises, um, brokenness, hybridity, creating new forms. Um, and, you know, I think it, it it took me a while to want to be able to acknowledge that, but it is um, my experience and Probably, you know, I think um, I think Mary Rufel talks about the lifelong sentence, um, which the, the way she talks about it, I, I take to mean that you're, you know, you're working with the same thing in various ways over the course of a creative life. And I really that really resonates for me in that everything that I'm working on um, is connected to uh, other projects. Um, I mentioned the archive project. Um, and that will involve, um, so the book will come out of writing about these, um, archival objects that I'm creating. So it will be, uh, fabric collages and, uh, paper collages, um, 
as if they were this artists. Um, but I'm also working on a, uh, a novel. <laughs> I always have to laugh when, you know, cause everybody's working on a novel, but I am actually been working on this novel for a long time. Um, that is about, uh, war reenactors and about, um, trying to, uh, reconnect with a missing father. So, um, to get back to maybe where we started, the idea of war reenactors is so fascinating to me because it's this attempt to perform, you know, it's this performance of memory um, and, and so uh, complicated. Um, so, you know, my family, like the relationships with my family and the way they have carried the traumas that they both inherited and inflicted um, and the way we, um, you know, as a, Americans grapple with our own kind of reckoning of the legacy of war and um, uh, with this this paradox between wanting to um, hold close to a, a pure sense of identity um, while also reckoning with uh, the past, um, all of those things really feed, um, you know, th those feel like life's work questions and I want to keep circling them um, for as long as I'm doing anything creative, I guess. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for that novel. <laughs> I, um, Me too. <laughs> I, there wasn't one poem that seemed like the obvious poem to end with. So I, I was going to suggest self-portrait as praying mantis abandoned Korean daughter, but I didn't know if that was a strange place to end. Did, do you have any thoughts on a, uh, on a last poem to read? I would be happy to read that. I, um, it, uh, I'll just explain that the, you know, it, it came from this, um, I don't even remember, you know, like the years you just collect these little bits of lint in your head and and I had read something about praying mantis um, uh, nymphs they're called and that when they're born um, they resemble adults so not all creatures when they're born resemble adults and this was really interesting to me in the context again of adoption um, and I was writing a series of uh, self-portrait poems and uh, this is what came from that self-portrait as praying mantis Abandoned Korean daughter. Let my body emerge from these dry brown husks with black dots for eyes and voracious. Mouth like flypaper, summer's dry heat, shedding skin. Does not rain for days, does not give way. The Korean goddess of rainfall is asleep in the north. The only woman who can tell me about my mother is 6,000 miles away and dying, sends me letters on blue paper so thin it is translucent, hungle small and tight, yielding nothing. Nymphs are born by the hundreds. At birth, they resemble adults. Who do I resemble? From time to time, I remember St. Anthony, patron saint of lost things. The nuns teach us to invoke him. St. Anthony, St. Anthony, please look around. Something is lost and cannot be found. Ask the woman for a name, for one word or two that will describe my mother. But my letters come back unanswered. 
years and years unanswered, years of looking for a name to drape across this cradle of time, name to stitch into this swaddling blanket, name to burn into this skin, this skin that must resemble her skin. From time to time, I remember sparrows bathing in dust, wild turkeys strutting through the dry brown yard. Inside the house, bowl of persimmons on low table, and a woman, hair falling down her back, looking away, never turning to see, never turning back, never looking for me. St. Anthony, patron saint of lost causes, please look around. In the garden, they lay in wait then strike, death grip on their unsuspecting prey so fast. Oh, mother, my method is ambush, too. I will wait for so long, will spend the days waiting, but then, when you are close enough, I will come at you fast, and I will take you apart. Thank you so much for being on the show, Mary Kim. Thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. We're talking today to poet Mary Kim Arnold about her latest book, The Fish and the Dove from Noemi Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but it's a volunteer-powered non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Mary Kim Arnold's work at mkimarnold.com. And Mary Kim adds a discussion and reading of a poem by Fareed Matuk and an excerpt of an essay by Viet Thanh Nguyen to the Bonus Audio Archive. This joins Bonus Audio from Viki Now, Brandon Shimoda, Garth Greenwell, Boris Gander, Jen Bervin, Nikki Finney, N.K. Jemison, and many others. To find out more about the Bonus Audio Archive and the other potential benefits and rewards from becoming a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep this ship afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog is Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>